Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Joe Garofoli and this is It's All Political on 5th and Mission. California has long been a pioneering mecca for LGBTQ politicians, going back to the days of Harvey Milk, the San Francisco supervisor who was one of the first openly gay elected officials in the United States. But in other ways, little has changed for queer politicians since Milk was elected 45 years ago. Before Matt Dorsey was appointed to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors last month, fellow supervisor Raphael Mandelman was the only out supervisor in the nine-county Bay Area. California has never had an LGBTQ U.S. senator or anything other than a straight white male governor. Insurance Commissioner Ricardo Lara is the only openly gay statewide officeholder. Only one member of the state's 53-person House delegation is LGBTQ, while 10% of the state Senate and 4% of the Assembly identify that way. California boasts the strongest civil rights protections for its LGBTQ residents and is on track to be the first state in the country to have 10% of its state legislature be queer in November. But California voters have never done something that some red states like Kansas have. We've never elected an out transgender person to the state legislature. Emberville's John Bodders is one of only eight queer mayors in California. On the eve of San Francisco's Pride celebration this weekend, I visited him in his office. He says that Pride Month is hard for him. I asked him why. Well, Pride Month is is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. To people in the LGBTQ community, it can mean a number of things. It's hard for me because uh, growing up, Pride was not a visible thing, nor was it an accessible thing. And so I have a lot of uh, feelings to this day about celebrating uh, being my authentic self and the community that I'm from, but also balancing that with ongoing issues of discrimination, harassment, um, and and just the fact that there are a lot of people who still today don't feel safe or comfortable being out and who they are and needing to make space for those people. And you have sort of, you're sort of torn between one, as you say, wanting to be your authentic self and yet not sharing too much mm-hmm. that you turn off or dissuade maybe people who would want to be in public service. Yeah. For LGBTQ people. Sure. There's, I, I really believe in living authentically and I'm anyone who watches or follows uh, how I try to exemplify leadership. will see, I'm just very full frontal. Um, you get me as I am. A lot of people like that. Some people don't like that. They think it's um, bad politics. I'm not really here for the politics so much as I am for the community building. But I think that when it comes to giving young people who have identities similar to my own or paths similar to my own um, perspective of what life in public service is like, I do feel torn because uh, I, I don't want younger people to feel scared, intimidated, or that this isn't a path they can or should pursue. Mm-hmm. And so what I share about some of the experiences I've had, uh, both in and you know affiliated with public service. I try to be really 
discerning about how much and what I share. What are some of the things you're hesitant to share? What I mean, what's where, where's the line? Because you get a lot of grief, shall we say. At times, it's very abusive. Um, I think that the line is, there, there's things that happen publicly that there's no point in trying to cover or, you know, put lipstick on, right? But there's... Like on um, social media, you're saying? Yes, things that people say in social media. I let those sit there. I don't usually, rarely will I engage them, mostly because I don't believe in giving oxygen to people who, you know, spew hate. Rarely do I engage it. Sometimes I will if I think that there's a benefit to helping other people be visible because they may not absorb it the same way I do because it's not going to them directly all the time um, to just let people see like this is a regular thing that people in a position like mine will deal with things that will happen um, more privately you know some of those things are things that would happen to any person regardless of whether they were in office I think some of those things happen by virtue of being in office and I think I'm a little more um, guarded about sharing those things one because I don't want to invite other people to do that or feel that that's a thing that they can get away with. Um, but two, I think if there's a young person who's considering a role in um, public service, I try to provide private mentorship to people and and talk them through those things where there's more capacity and context. And when you talk to folks privately, are you, you give them the, the pros and cons. They, you, you let them know what they're getting into. Oh, 100%. You, it would be irresponsible to um, give somebody a, a jaded or a slanted view of what service is like if you're, if you're queer. Yeah. But the other day you saw that uh, State Senator Scott Weiner recently had law enforcement check out a bomb threat mm-hmm. that was made to his home. Now Scott Weiner's gay. He, so he told one of my colleagues at the Chronicle that on a normal, quote, slow week, I'll get three to five death threats. How did, how did that resonate with you, and, uh, and what larger message does that send? Well, I, I believe him that that's likely to be his situation. He's uh, He's been a very vocal proponent of a number of things to protect and expand the rights of civil rights of LGBT people, so it wouldn't surprise me that that would make him a, a larger target for that kind of conduct. I mean, I think that I think the, the bigger issue here is, I mean, like, if, if people think we're, you know, marriage equality has happened, check, everything is great now. That that's like a total myth. Uh, that there's a lot of hate, and I think in the last five years, a lot of people who harbor that hate have been empowered um, by the actions of other political leaders. To be honest with you, to you know act upon their feelings or um, become more brazen in their engagement with queer leaders. Uh, m- mostly, I think from a place of fear, and when people are ignorant and fearful, they they tend to act in ways that are not really rational or conducive to to, to safe communities. Um, I, I think the fact that we needed to expend resources to search his home or his district office to see if it was if there was actually a bomb there or not is, is just a sign of just how troubled our society is. I mean, it's broader than the LGBT community, right? This happens to black and brown um elected leaders this happens to women regular women in particular it's kind of almost subtextual how much harassment women experience in different ways and yet it's been normalized like we almost report it it's like school shootings we report it now daily almost as if it's like oh it just continues to happen and there's no like concerted effort to actually address it so it falls on people who represent those communities to constantly be raising awareness and talking about why this is unacceptable and how this actually engenders and empowers certain people who shouldn't be 
close <laughs> close to elected leaders or close to other people who they harbor these feelings towards it engenders and empowers them to um do things that are really scary to be honest with you and being one of the few it's exhausting you're expected to sort of represent for everybody all the time yeah, all the time and when things happen in communities there's fewer voices or fewer leaders that people see that they can reach out to about how do we address this right i get i mean i got them today i get questions from people almost daily and it's there's like a peak in pride month which is why it exhausts me um of people saying well this has happened how do we respond to this how are how should we deal with this will you sign a letter to support this can you call call this elected official who did this thing or that thing or didn't do this thing or that thing for that matter um it, it does create kind of a higher expectation for people who are elected in open and you've done uh i mean you've done extraordinary things to to help uh, L- other LGBTQ people. In fact, you just told me about 2018. There's a high school student in Kentucky mm-hmm. who was not allowed to g- give us a valedictorian speech. What yeah. what happened when you had heard about that? I mean, for me, pride is about visibility and ensuring that every person in the community can belong. And so, when I read Christian Bale's story that uh, in Covington, Kentucky, that they weren't going to let him give his valedictorian speech because his um, attire was gender non-conforming. Um, the New York Times wrote a story about it, and uh, he tried to give his speech outside of the graduation venue. So I reached out to the reporter, and I asked to be put in touch with the family, and I spoke to them, and I asked them, I said, would you like to give your speech? And the community here at Emeryville is so inclusive and welcoming, and people rallied, and several of the business leaders, we, we had him um, and his sister flew out here, and we had a pride celebration at City Hall. We had a number of accolades and awards and recognitions. And kind of the 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 final piece of that event was he gave his valedictorian speech to a packed audience here at Emeryville City Hall and got a standing ovation for it. And we went outside. He he came exactly as he was. He didn't have to be anybody anybody but himself. And we had a flag raising ceremony, which he participated in outside in front of City Hall. And then there was a big city citywide celebration over at one of our restaurants, you know, and just to just to help young people who are leaders. And he's a leader, like to give them visibility, to help them feel included. is just something that I I understand personally is really important and try to leverage my position to make happen for people. Just recently, you had heard from a. A, and we'll say an elected official in a in a uh, Bay Area city, and uh, that person's mayor didn't invite them to speak at the uh, at their city's pride event. He hasn't. Yeah, their event their event is coming up. There is a friend of mine, and they reached out to me and said, "I don't really know what to do. I need your advice. Um, this is not the first time this has happened. Um, they're the only openly queer person on their council." And um, the mayor and some other people are putting on a pride event and wasn't invited, wasn't invited to speak at it. Uh, and it, to me, it comes back to that. It's like you're doing the whole thing wrong. If, if, you're, if you're professing to be a ally for visibility and inclusivity, there's nothing more important than making the people in your community who are LGBTQ visible and then including them in the creation of that event or program or giving them a role to speak, um, helping them show further visibility on behalf of your government, which you should be really proud of, to the community that you're represented here. Like we, we are a reflection of you. Your government is a reflection of you. It is extremely short-sighted um, 
it's negligent, truthfully, to be the mayor of a city and have that resource on your council and not invite it to the like to an event or a venue that would really help elevate the conversation in your community. It seems really short-sighted to me. We'll have more with Emeryville Mayor John Botters after this break. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Welcome back to It's All Political on Fifth Emission. I'm talking to Emeryville Mayor John Botters, one of only eight out LGBTQ mayors in California. I was recently talking to the head of the LGBTQ Victory Fund Institute, which done, has done a number of studies on why people run or don't run mm-hmm. for public office. And one one is something that affects many candidates who come from marginalized communities of you know, lack of money. Uh, and, and, and not only lack of personal wealth, but a lack of access to networks uh, that you can fundraise from. And another is concerned about harassment, which we've discussed here. What, what do people tell you when they're considering to run and what are, what's their biggest hesitation? Well, I think that the Bay Area is a little different in the sense that there's, even though their intolerance still exists here, it's not as oppressive as you might experience elsewhere, right? There's a relativity factor. But I would say that in terms of things that would be a barrier to running, it's most commonly resources. So uh, people who are LGBT, there's, you, you have to really recognize that for a very long time, the LGBT community has been um, represented publicly by white gay men, and it is not homogenous like that. In fact, and that is a, a big problem within the LGBT community that I see is there's a need to recognize the diversity of that community and the fact that many LGBT people are actually lower income people. And that is not by accident. That is because of the intersectionality of queerness with being a person of color, being a woman, people who make only a percentage of what men make earning at the same job, right? The, the, the difference between what men and women make, um, the socioeconomic differences from historical transfers of wealth between white families and black families. And so those intersectional components exist within the LGBT community. You've just added a layer of marginalization to their experience as a human being. And so for a lot of those folks, they they don't really have access to resources. So I, I know people who have not run because they don't have stable housing. They don't live in rent-controlled housing. Their um, rent increases and they're afraid they're going to be forced out of their home, both here in California and elsewhere. So they are contemplating running, but then decide against running because they may not even be a resident in the community they wish to represent in 12 months. So there are those types of things that go on in the daily experience of a lot of LGBT folks that are barriers to them running. You are 42 right now, correct? And um, what are some of the different forces, political and otherwise, that, that shaped your life as a as a young person, aspiring uh, politician, uh, office elected office leader. Um, so, I mean, for example, you we've talked about this a little bit in the past. You grew up in the generation that was sort of at the tail end of, of the first generation to deal with AIDS, right. correct? Mm-hmm. And you also um, were in the middle of the fight to secure same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. How did those two things uh, shape your worldview and... And how is that different from someone who maybe is 
just coming out of college right now. Those were really instrumental in in shaping my worldview, um, mostly because I think what it gave me was a baseline experience with other people, whether they're gay or not, as to what it's like to have to perpetually fight for the same rights, the same access, and the same opportunities as other people. And to watch other people not really fully appreciate how hard it is to like go about your daily life when it's like, I can be fired because I'm gay. Mm-hmm. If my boss knows I could be let go without, and there's no protections for me. Um, or if I wanted to be married, uh, I, I don't, I won't get any of the same tax or legal protections that other people who could walk into a Las Vegas chapel get the same evening. Um, so it, recognizing the disparities, having lived through that, I think what it has done is made me um, empathetic to a lot of other types of vulnerable communities that I don't have firsthand experience with. Immigrant communities is a big one for me. Um, people who speak English as a second language, just seeing seeing how they have to grapple with an existence that is not equitable to them has helped me as a leader really not be myopic in my like what is my worldview but really like what is the worldview of all the people i serve um, and how do i remove those barriers for them but i think for younger people there's just kind of like the next iteration of of battles right like transgender rights is a huge example of things today of, of something today that's um that wasn't a high discussed item in the 80s or 90s or early 2000s when I and others were having these other kind of, you know, social social battles that we were having um, to fight for equality. I think, I think that being kind of sandwiched between cohorts of people who've dealt with, you know, these things, like, um, I really am, rec- I really recognize what people who lost all their best friends to AIDS in the early 80s you know, who, who kind of were like, I'm glad there was a mixture of people who were like, you know, you never really appreciate what it was like. Mm-hmm. And I, and I remember kind of a mixture of feeling bad for them and a little like unhappy to be pre- presented with it that way. And then people who were happy that that would not be my experience. And it's kind of funny to age into a place where you're, you're kind of like, I'm glad that, you know, well, I say this now, but I'm glad that younger people today don't have to worry about whether they can be married. Now uh, the Supreme court may make me, you know, put my work boots back on. But, um, you know, I I do feel like there's like, there's progress there. And I, and it's, you see a new level of comfort and authenticity and um, acceptance among people, like younger people today are growing up with, it's completely normal for two people of the same sex to be married. It's not, it's not a thing, right? Where it's like a huge social topic. It's not a thing anymore. And so the, the, dialogue has advanced and progressed to other issues and i just feel like that's kind of how the movement goes and so i i feel good to have done the things that i did the ways i engaged in civil action like over the years um to help build the momentum for those types of successes Mm -hmm. um and i really think that i'm at a stage where it's a time for other people to lead younger people who have who who are closer to the pulse of what is happening today to lead and for me to find ways to support them. And you were also just uh, named chair of the Bay Area Air Quality Management District. Mm-hmm. Um, 
tell us just about what you said at the end of, I believe it was the first meeting that you chaired. So the first meeting I chaired at the district office there was on June 1st. It was the first day of Pride Month. So I, I've started a few new things. One is I have an agenda item at the near the top of the agenda where any new staff person is uh, brought before the board and introduced and they get several minutes to tell us about themselves and their background. I think it's really important to personalize who works at public agencies and let them be visible. Um, and at the end of the meeting is chair remarks. And I use that opportunity to, as I put it, to tell the story of um, of a boy um, who had written a, another boy's name in a heart on a spelling test and how um, that had invited a whole parent-teacher discussion about the appropriateness of doing such a thing um, and, and how that boy went through school and was called queer and fag and homo um, and his own neighbors, uh, kids uh, would, you know, occasionally beat him up on the way home from school and just kind of the progression of his journey through high school and, um, you know, the challenges he faced, especially because there were no people visible to him um, in his community who identified as queer, at least openly, um, and just really feeling like he didn't belong anywhere and feeling a lot of hopelessness. And then having constantly respond to questions from within his own family about, well, if people are doing these things to you, what is it that you're doing that's causing that? Why are you, why, why are you to blame for what's happening to you? And engaging in, you know, uh, self-harm and having very low feelings of self-worth and uh, went through a bunch of things in young adulthood. And I just told him at the end of kind of, you know, telling the story, I said, well, you know, today that that boy is the chair of this board. And so it's really important in a month like Pride for people with that lived experience to be visible. Um, it's uncomfortable and sometimes traumatic to talk about those things because it, it's there aren't pleasant memories, right? They're not things that you enjoy sharing even. It feels sometimes a little... Um, you feel a little exposed talking about those things because you really didn't enjoy them when they happened. And I think for me, it's, I've come to a place of um, acceptance in my own life with myself and a lot of comfort and self-actualization around like, this is who I am and I'm open, I'm authentic and I'm unapologetic for that. Um, I really don't have anyone who I need to um, make happy with who I am. And so for me, it's about modeling that to other people um, and I just felt like with that platform, um, you know, being responsible for chairing a board that oversees the air quality of over 7 million people in the Bay Area, that it was an opportunity to tell 400 plus employees of the district and the public that if you, um, if you need a person to listen to you or to understand you, there's now somebody here who does. Has anyone reached out uh, since then? I had several staff members actually email me and I'm taking lunch uh, in the next couple of weeks with employees of the district who asked to meet with me yeah that's great that's yeah positive. i think it's that's exactly what it's supposed to be yeah people who recognize there's someone they can talk to about their experience and want to do that i i welcome that john waters thank you for being on Thanks it's all political uh, on fifth admission i'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy i'd like to thank john botters for being on the podcast today i'd like to thank the king king kaufman for producing this episode to nick ellerson for editing and to melissa newcomb for her help and remember no matter what month it is it's all political <laughs>